listeners. So we are both extremely excited. We got our first comments through our comment form on our website. So congrats to you two who are our inaugural users of that service. Um, I'm very excited. Uh, So first, I want to give a shout out to Pam, who decided to send us a message about DMSO, which was in our recent episode about Gloria. If you haven't listened to that one yet, Gloria Ramirez. Um, So Pam says that uh, DMSO can be used if you hurt your fingers or your toes and you can soak those appendages with the DMSO. Um, And apparently it is commonly used in Ontario, Canada by farmers for their horses sore muscles, which I had never even thought of that. So that's a really cool kind of like personal like experience story share in there. Um, And then just a clarification, you are absolutely right, Pam. Um, The garlicky order does not come from consuming the DMSO, so it doesn't come from eating it, but you rub it on your body and then there's this garlicky odor that you admit and you can taste garlic in your mouth which is super bizarre that something you topically apply could you know do that to you but um also super cool so once again thanks pam yeah um and the the other piece of feedback that we received uh was uh from somebody who was commenting on our audio quality issues and this is something that we've both kind of known about for a little while and as you might be able to hear right now, um, we've we fixed some of those issues. Um, I'm a little bit louder. I've got a new audio setup going on. Um, Mel records using a headset. I recorded using a Snowball microphone uh, by Blue. If you guys are familiar with those, they're just like the cheapest USB microphone that's really common. Turns out it's not great for like single source audio. Um, so I've upgraded the setup considerably to, to something a little more... Uh, bougie um but easier to edit with and easier to do things like adjust volumes like now i'm really but now i'm really loud um so but thank you claudia for sending us that information and for giving us some you know tippers or tips or your insight into what we can do on the podcast and definitely if you guys ever hear anything weird with the audio have any comments have any suggestions no matter what they might be please continue to send us that information through our contact form or through social media. Um, neither of us are professional podcasters at all. We have no idea what we're doing. We're learning as we go. So Yet. any and all feedback or advice you have, we totally appreciate it. We're getting there. It'll be okay. We're, we're working on there. it. We're working on it. And we're working so hard. Fingers to the bone, man. We got to apply some DMSO on them. Ooh, maybe. I don't know. I like garlic, but it's... It freaks me out, weirds me out that I get a garlicky taste in my mouth when I put stuff on my fingers. That's not, it's not, nope, nope. Okay, so shout outs aside, are you ready for our episode? I am, and I hear this is a long one. This might be a two-parter. Yes, this might be a two-parter, so stay tuned. Yeah. Okay, so today I am bringing you the story of the murder of Yara Gambrazio. Now, this is sort of like a two-for-one story, because not only is it the story of a girl who was murdered, so just a shout-out to everyone. If it's hard for you to listen to stories or cases that involve the death of a child, this is not going to be the one for you. Um, but that aside, the, uh, you know, aside from the fact that it was a crime, There's also a really interesting, super 
intricate like investigation that went into it that is just it's a wild ride so are you ready for this wild ride i'm very ready for the wild ride perfect so i'm going to give you a bit of a setting setup here so it's late in 2010 in a sleepy quiet northern italian city of rembate and the city is about six hours from rome and is close to the swiss border so the thing that it important to realize about this part of Italy is that when you think of like a stereotypical Italian, you're not really going to see that as being everybody around you in this town. Um, Because they're so close to the Swiss border, there's a lot of sort of um, cultural symbiosis, I guess you could say, of, uh, you know, they're not like, when you think of a standard Italian in your head, these people are not that. Okay, They're, 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 they're more Swiss. Well, they're they're their own special blend. They don't they don't they don't have that Mediterranean golden Italian look about them. <laughs> well, really, it's more about their personality and what kind of community they have. Ah. So, where they're situated is on a so-called island, um, Bergamask, and it's a piece of land between two rivers, the Brembo and the Ada. And it's a really small rural community here. So this is nothing like the glamour of Milan, which is actually the closest big city to this town. That's about an hour to the north. Okay. There are only about 8,000 residents here. So pretty small. Um, And many still use wood-burning stoves and like raise their own chickens. So it's like a completely different world. What year is this? 2010. This is 2010. Okay. I mean, my neighbors raise chickens, but... Uh, you're in they don't rural. have a wood burning stove, as far as I know. You're in borderline rural America. Like you're in a big town, but not right. Not like a, not in a place that people outside the U.S. have heard of. Fair. So uh, you know, just think, think smaller, think slower pace, think like safe and comfortable. Um. So with that in mind, we're gonna focus in on Yara. So it is six forty-four p.m. on November. 26. And Yara is leaving the Brambate di Sopra, which is the full name of her town, Sports Center. And she is walking back home, but she never makes it there. And it's only like 700 meters away, which for people like me who don't convert in our heads, that's like half a mile. So that's like depending on how flat the land is and how many buildings there are, like she could possibly see this building from her home. That's like even less than half a mile. That's that's very that's a short, short distance. Right. And it's it's a walk that she had made time and time again. So it's not like she's in a strange place. Nothing like that. Her parents felt perfectly comfortable letting her walk there. And, you know, to set the scene even more, winter is settling in. So it's kind of chilly in the town. So she's wearing a jacket and gloves. You know, we're creeping toward Christmas, all that kind of stuff. So she had a competition the next weekend and she was going to the sports center because she was a gymnast. And so she needed to return a stereo to her instructor as well as wanting to do some light training to get prepared for this competition. Now, this simple act of walking into the nearby sports center, just to give you an overview here, would spawn a multi-year case, one full of intrigue, DNA testing, wiretapping, and we're talking like close to possibly 56 million conversations being recorded. Oh my god. And is rumored to have cost taxpayers as much as 8 million euro. Oh my god. 
which is, yes, a lot of money. And this case would go on to captivate the Italian public, who mostly viewed Brambate di Sopra as a land, you know, like I talked about, just distant and strange from their own. Like, they're Italians, but they're not, you know, they're still the other. They're the other within. Right. They're like, ah, oh, there's and, weird country folk to the north. Right, right. So just to, as a parting thought before we settle into the case here, when asked to describe this case and sum it up, the lead investigator only stared at her desk and said the word incredible four times. Oh my God. So what? Okay. So keep that all in mind. Okay. So Yara herself was basically just your typical average teenager, uh, preteen. You know, she and her family were just completely average people. She wore braces like many 13-year-olds do. She loved taking her gymnastics classes, and she was pretty serious about her competitions. And her parents were really supportive of that and supportive of her. And they were just, in general, you know, like when you think of the perfect, loving, supportive family, like, like this is the type of family you're looking at. Okay. So her mother was a teacher in town, and her father was an architect. And it's great because I was reading more about her, like, family genealogy, essentially. And it was, like, funny to read how... Her father's mother was the postmaster, and her dad had been the postmaster, and his dad had been the postmaster. So they're just deeply rooted in this community and in this town. Postmasterology. Lots of postmastery it, here. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, everybody trusted everyone in this town. You maybe didn't know every single individual. 8,000 is a little bit too big for that. But, like, you know the people who are around you pretty well. Right. And so she would walk from her home to the sports center quite often. It wasn't anything that her parents ever worried about. And they knew about how long it would take her, you know, to walk there and then to walk home. Right. Well, and it's also, I mean, even in like a city, like she is, she's of the age where it is perfectly natural for her to walk like a half a mile to go to the gym. Like that's not, that's not a weird right, thing. That's, yeah. Right. This is not a weird circumstance at all. And so to give a little background on the sports center itself, it was this really big, like, multi-purpose building. So people could go there to run laps or to swim. And it had, like, a ton of different entrances. And it wasn't just, like, a big rectangle. So it kind of had little pieces and bits put together. So what she was doing that night, like I mentioned, was going to the sports center to drop off that stereo and do a little bit of late training. So she left her home at about 5.15 p.m. Now she left the sports center, like I said, around 6.45 p.m. And just a little bit before that time, Yara actually texted her friend Martina, who was also going to be at the competition that weekend. So Yara even mentioned to Martina that she would see her in a few days there, planning to meet up at 8 a.m., so she wasn't giving any sorts of signs or indications that she didn't plan to make it home. By 7 p.m., Yara's mother still hadn't seen her. And mm. this kind of like pricked the skin at the back of her neck. You know, like this was weird. It felt wrong. It just it wasn't right. At 7.11 p.m., she tried calling her daughter and the call went straight to voicemail. Uh -oh. And this was like full-blown sirens going in her head yeah exactly because her daughter never turned her cell phone off like that i mean like who does? she was always available right like who isn't just constantly attached to their cell phone even in you know 2010 when we didn't have the smartphones that we have today right 
So she's like, okay, this is not good. Something has happened. I need to figure out what's going on with my daughter. So 20 minutes later, Yara's father was home by this time. And he called the police and reported his daughter missing and asked them to come help and find her. Now, I have to say that almost like for once, you know, when you're reading about true crime cases like this, it's always like, and they called to report her missing and the police were like, she'll show up in like a week. Like, whatever. But it hadn't been 24 hours yet, even though that's not a real thing. Like, yeah, that's that always happens with I, I think that's come up in half the episodes we've had about a murder or a missing person. It's like, eh, police didn't even try. So. Right, and so I have to say, like, the police did not drop the ball on this case. Maybe it's because so, it's Europe. <laughs> because it's Italy and it's a smaller town. Yeah. You know what I mean? We could go down a whole rabbit hole here. Yeah. But needless to say, they actually were responsive. Hooray. So the call was put through to the public prosecutor's office, which is in the center of the provincial capital, Bergamo, which is a larger city about seven miles to the east of Rubate de Sopra, which is where we are right now. Um, and Letizia uh, Rugri responded to the case. Now, she is a 45-year-old mother herself, and she was a super experienced member of the force. And she had had like 15 years under her belt. In fact, she cut her teeth on prosecuting and pursuing the Sicilian mafia. Oh, my God. So, like, she knows what she's talking about. This lady's like, a badass. She knows what's up. She's a badass, basically. Yeah. So she is like, okay, hell no. We need to get on this right now. Like, she was outside their door the minute after they had the phone. I don't know. She was, like, right on top of it. Wonderful. So within minutes, both state police and military police were sent to the town to help with the search. Wow. And the important thing to know... Right. Well, and the important thing to know, though, about Italy is that um, their military police isn't like our military police where all they do is deal with military things. You know, they're not only prosecuting people in the military, only, you know, dealing right. with cases that happen on a base. So they're essentially like a police force run by the government, like at large, like a federal sort of a situation, like FBI agents. I they're guess, like our FBI. Would. Right. So that's kind of the impression that I got from everything that I read. So, I mean, it's not super bizarre, but it's also, like, great that it's not just one guy who showed up with, like, yeah. you know, eating his takeout or something, being like, hey, All right. yeah, just like, tell me what happened. Time to go find a kid. <laughs> right. I got I to gotta finish taking my, you know, my lunch break here. Just a second. Not just a second. Um, Maybe I got a cup of coffee. <laughs> oh, oh, God, no. <laughs> um, so they started the search right away so they started knocking on doors talking to people who were in the neighborhood going to the sports center trying to figure out who had seen her last there and this was a lot of hubbub for this small town so the neighbors Everyone noticed knew right away exactly and this was a good thing in this case because everybody wanted to help find yara so the neighbors were coming out of the house and they were walking up to people on the street being like have you seen this girl here's the information we know and like building up their network to alert everybody in the town about her and the fact that she had disappeared. So in this case, it was like awesome. a community coming together to like help protect one of their own, right. which is great. That's awesome. And I mean, they got really intense. It wasn't just like, you know, they looked around the house and they like 
looked inside the sports center quick and then we're like, oh, I can't find her. I mean, they were searching every nook and cranny, like going down alleyways and seeing if like she was down there, seeing if she had fallen and hurt herself. They even started to search the sports center and like looking up and ducks and like in vans you know nooks and crannies and things like that because they were like well what if she accidentally got in somewhere where she wasn't supposed to and she's hurt so i mean they were not going to leave any stone unturned in this city until they found yara that sounds like bad news the fact that you're telling me that sounds like really bad news well, oh, no. the bad news is is that they weren't finding her. So they're right. looking everywhere, looking in logical places and even illogical places, and they're not finding this girl. And she's like a 13-year-old girl, so it's not like a toddler who's super, super, you know, tiny and compact and can, like, get into weird places. I mean, right. she's a human-sized human. Right. So the police also question Yara's instructor, Sylvia, to be like, hey, did she make it here ever? And Sylvia said, yep, I talked to her. She handed me the stereo. Um, she had done some late training. But then I saw her, you know, like walk out of my eyesight and I haven't seen her since. So at least they knew that, yes, she had made it there. She had been at the sports center and she had made contact with people there. But everything after that was up in the air. Gotcha. So we have a rough so, timeline. Oh, right. When she was last so seen, at least. Right, which is important to know yeah. because it's important to know where somebody was last seen and when that was. Yeah. And also, like, how they were acting. And she wasn't acting strange. She wasn't, you know, upset or crying or afraid or anything like that. She was just her normal self. Right. Now, this is the first indicator that this case is going to get super intense, what I'm about to tell you. Uh-oh. Intense, like, investigation-wise. Right. So this is this first night that she has disappeared and the police call in tracker dogs. Okay. Day one, <laughs> which is usually something you do not see in the United States. No, that's usually and, what happens when they're like looking for a body or when they and, like, think they might be looking later. for a And well, and you know, in the US, we have a lot of wide open wood woodsy spaces too. So they, they'll pull in the dogs if it's like a lost kid in the middle of, you know, like the Northwoods forest of, of Montana or something. But it, if it's like a city, even a moderately sized town, they're not they're not going to pull out the tracker dogs yet. Right, exactly. And these dogs are like badass dogs. They're like a specific special breed of tracker dog. <laughs> like I could have gone down this whole rabbit hole just on these dogs. Like it's just it's pretty cool and pretty intense. Puppies. So they started the dogs at the sports center, you know, wanting to see what her path had been. And they're surprised when the dogs, you know, don't start walking down the path back to her home. But instead, they go off toward Mapello, which is a small town about two miles away and in the opposite direction of her home. Uh Like she didn't even start, you know what I mean? It wasn't even like she got halfway home and then it turned. It was like sports center opposite direction like she even maybe left through a different door type of directionality possibly right right wow okay Not that's weird that but by this time they were able to look into the last like ping signals from her phone records and okay. that came from the pillow as well oh at six forty-nine p.m now if we remember her last communique had been at six forty-four p.m so that's like five minutes later 
Right. So how did she? So she got two miles in five minutes. That sounds like there might have been a vehicle involved. Sounds suspicious. Exactly. And that is exactly what they thought. Because why would she have headed there? She didn't know anybody there. Like she didn't have friends there, family there. And moreover, there's no way she would have made that on foot. Right. So clearly, there was a vehicle involved. And being a 13-year-old girl, it was not her car. Right. Because she didn't have one. Nor did she know how to operate one. Well, that I don't know. Yeah, Out maybe in the country, sometimes you learn to drive pretty. And I have a coworker who was like, yeah, I learned to drive when I was like 12 on my grandpa's farm. And I'm like, don't tell me that. That makes me scared. <laughs> I don't want I don't want to be on the road with 12 year olds. Nope, nope, nope. So, you know, this was already kind of starting to form a picture for them as far as where their investigation would lead. Now, some people did claim that they saw Yara speaking to two men by a red car outside the sports complex. But this was investigated pretty thoroughly. And as we go through this case more, you'll see how thorough it gets. So I'm sure you can take me for my word at that. Okay. Um, but it didn't really go anywhere. It just kind of fizzled out. So they've already eliminated all the easy answers, right? Like she's not stuck somewhere. She didn't like fall on trip and was, you know, laying unconscious in an alleyway or something like that. So that means they really need to start digging in their heels and doing a deep dive in this case to try to find her. Because mm -hmm. as we know, the first 48 hours are 110% crucial to your success rate at finding a missing person alive. Aren't there like multiple TV shows called 48 Hours? Yeah. About investigation like discovery stuff? Yeah. So the police know that this is serious and they need to really start digging in. So the first place, kind of going back to basics, is to investigate her family. Because even if they seem perfectly normal, perfectly chill on the outside... There are a lot of true crime cases that start. They seem like the perfect couple, but underneath the surface, a storm was brewing. Yep. I think we've said that before. It's uh, it's not always the husband, but it's always the husband, right? <laughs> right. So, fair. So her family hadn't acted suspicious at all, because sometimes when a child goes missing, right away, somebody is just acting super sus. And that's the person you zero in on. And nobody was acting that way, but they needed to cover all their bases. So they started to do interviews with her family first. And what they found was exactly what I told you at our intro. They were a kind, loving family, well-respected by the community. There was no like, oh yeah, I'm the neighbor and I hear them fighting all the time or anything like that. There was no you know, financial strife going on. There is no, like, <laughs> infidelity that they could see. No erroneous life insurance policies. or <laughs> Right, like in another episode where yep. we covered another case involving a family with a child. Yep. So they can, you know, quickly rule them out. And they don't really see anything strange here. So they're like, okay. We got to spread out. I mean, and it's important to note here, too, that Yara had three siblings and they were all perfectly normal children as well. So like 110 percent, it's not the family, which right. I like being able to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So without many other leads, the police are like, OK, maybe what we need to do is cast a really wide net and try and build up a database and then zero in from there. 
So the first thing they start to do is they start to see whose cell phones had been used in Mapello at the time of Yara's disappearance. Because there's, you know, if somebody is in Mapello, they're there when she, you know, disappeared at that time. For sure. Maybe they had something to do with it. Which, okay, I get it. Good idea, y'all. Now, they had a kind of daunting task ahead of them. 15,000 phones had been used in the area that day. Oh, my God. So that's like a ton to work through. Yep. Now, a bunch were wiretapped. And like we discussed, millions of calls were recorded. Now, I'm not saying that every single call was listened to, but that's how much data they gathered right. to pull in. Well, and this is 2010. I mean, this is this is in the era where, like, this is recent enough that algorithmic phone tapping and, and listening and surveillance can actually happen and is definitely a possibility. I mean, oh, right, exactly. We're, we're still within the era of Facebook. We haven't gone that far back into the past, so right. It seems 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 like they're really just casting a you know a, a UK size net basically and listening to everything and hoping they get some get some purchase on something. Get something. Yeah. Right, and it's important to note that by this point we have slipped past that forty eight hour mark, and there's okay. still no sign of Yara. So now we're into late November. Still no leads, still no information. They're trying to comb through all of these phone calls, hoping for something. So how long has it been now? So she went missing on the 26th of November. So now we're like the tail end of November. Okay. Like November like 30th. You know what I mean? We're like at the very, very end of the month. Right. So people are listening to phone calls, you know, sorting through them. And a Moroccan man was recorded on the phones through these wiretaps, and he had been in the area when Yara disappeared. And alarm bells instantly went off for a translator when he heard this Moroccan man say, forgive me, God, I didn't kill her. Oh, no. Which seems incredibly suspicious. I, yep, yep. (laughs) So this man was Mohammed Fikri. And he had been working in a builder's yard in Mapello at the time of Yara's disappearance, so he was in the area. However, by the time the police were alerted and had time to process his call a few days later, he was already on a boat to Tangiers. Because it's not like someone's live listening to a phone call. Like, there's just too many phone calls in a day to do that. So this is a recorded, already happened phone conversation. So, you know, they're already behind. Yeah. So he's on this boat, and they're like, oh shit, we gotta stop it. So Italian police were able to stop the boat, and he was arrested on December 4th. So this is a pretty tight turnaround time from when she disappeared, right? Like, we're not that far out. Yeah. Well, I mean, seven days, depending on when they arrested him. I mean, we're talking almost exactly a week, basically, since she went missing. So. So they arrest him. And they start to search, you know, for anything, any physical areas he had been in. Right. And they were able to find a van that he had been using to drive around in when he had been in the town. And they found a blood-stained mattress in the back of that van. Oh, my. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Right. Which is not good. And also, like, y'all, even if the blood wasn't from murder, like, please don't have bloody mattresses just in the back of your car that you just, like, tow around for 
extended periods of time. That's still, like, that's icky, right? Can, we can agree that's icky. Like, I can see why you might have a mattress in your car. I can see how you might bleed in your car. And I can see situations at home where some blood might get on a mattress. I cannot see the Venn diagram where all three of those things intercept where there isn't some sort of incredibly suspicious illegal activity involved. <laughs> right, and I mean, they didn't specify how much blood, but I'm assuming that by bloody, like, we're not talking, like, a couple drops, right? If you call we're something a like... bloody mattress, like, that that's a really bloody towel you have there. That's not a pinprick, right? That is that is a blood-soaked <laughs> towel. Exactly, which is, like, the feeling that I got from everything that I read. Creepy, okay. However, so... unfortunately... The blood had nothing to do with the case. And in fact, the words overheard by the translator were actually mistranslated. Oh, no. But here's the thing, though. I tried to be what like, did he kill? so where did the blood come from? And I couldn't find an answer. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, they found out that the blood was from he had like killed a chicken. Yeah, like, to, did he, like... you know, do whatever in his back car. Like, nobody says that anywhere. I... Oh, my God. So it was a mistranslation. So he's not the guy. And the bloody mattress that, okay, so so w this bloody mattress is its own mystery, is what you're telling me. That is what I'm telling you. And I didn't have time to, like, dig into what the bloody mattress could have been. Okay. But I will look into it, and I'll tell you guys <laughs> if I can figure it out, because it is it is itching uh, my brain. I need to know. This bloody mattress might <laughs> be its own episode. Why a grown-ass adult had... You know what I mean? A bloody mattress in the back of this car. A grown-ass adult who didn't live in that country, who didn't own that car, but Who was then on a boat leaving the country. Right. And he just left the mattress in the van. Like, there's some, like, if missing case, missing person's case notwithstanding, if you just told me the police found this man with a bloody mattress in the back of his old van and that he was leaving the country... There's a crime there. There's a crime in there. I don't know what the crime is. We should is, investigate this. But there's a crime in there, and I'm... Hmm. 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 Right. Hmm. So, more on that later. I'll report back. Hmm. But he is not our, He's not guy, our guy for the purposes of this episode. Kay. He might be the guy for another episode. Right. Okay. And the fact of the matter was, you know, when they announced that he had been arrested, arrested he was a suspect that people liked in that they could get behind him being the murderer because he is someone from out of the country. He's a foreigner. He's not one of them. Right. You know, it's like an us versus them mentality. And it's easier to believe that somebody from far away who is, you know, in your mind, wholly unlike you, you know, that they could kidnap and hurt a children of your, you know, a child of your town but nobody really wanted to face the ugly truth. And that being that it was likely somebody in their own town who had taken and hurt Yara. Right. You, it's, it's the, the small community, the, the very common small community mentality where you don't want to believe that any of these people that you know could have caused this. But like with most horrible crimes, it's usually somebody close to the victim, not, not further. Well, and you know, like, Life lesson, you never really know somebody other than yourself. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you don't even know that. And exactly, sometimes you don't. So with that in mind, the police need to keep searching. They need to keep looking. So we're going to fast forward through the month of December a bit. 
to a few days after Christmas. So we're in early January. That's a sad and... Christmas. That's a, that's a very sad Christmas. Right. You know, I was thinking about that and I was like, you know, that was that family's first Christmas without their daughter, without their sister, without their friend. That's just, yeah, it's very sad. It's really sad. So a few days after this sad holiday, uh, Brambate di Sopra was firmly in winter. So it is cold outside. And Yara still hasn't been found. And moreover, they haven't found evidence of her anywhere, either in their town or in Mapello. They, they haven't seen her. And remember that they organized huge searches. And that wasn't just in her town. When they learned about the phone pinging in Mapello, they did searches there too. So they have not found anything anywhere. At this point, I want to pause for a bit to give a brief cultural note. So from what I was reading, and I read a couple of different articles that stated this, Italy as a country is wholly captivated by crime TV and crime news, very similarly to the United States, perhaps even more so. Okay. And they call it um, Cronace Nere. Uh, so it's like... The crime narrative, crime I think. News. Or crime yeah. news, yeah. And by now, you know, we've had some time pass. This has become a national news headline. And there is a frenzy over her case. I mean, everybody is reporting on it. Everybody is talking about it. You know, we're in the internet age, so people are talking about it on the internet, on TV, to each other. Multiple blogs and websites that are devoted to it. Right. I mean, like everyone is talking about it. And so, kind of an unfortunate side effect of that is that her family was just hounded by the media. And now they are just like their town, which is like a pretty quiet, private town. They're also a private family. And they're like super uncomfortable and really don't like being in the spotlight like this. Like oh, I'm sure. they want their daughter to come home. They want to find her. But like they're not out here trying to get famous. I'm sure every hotel in town that was closest to their house was filled with reporters and paparazzi and... All sorts of right, exactly, and people like showing up at their house and being like, "Hey, do you want to talk about this?" And I mean, no, personally, <laughs> right? Personally, if a family member of mine had disappeared, I wouldn't want to be talking to a bunch of strangers about it. Like, why do I want to relive this trauma that I'm already reliving every single day and telling it to people who don't have the sort of you know deep emotional pain that I have? Get out of my yard! Like, yeah, no. no, absolutely not. No, go away. Exactly. I'm not your news story. It's a- Right. And, you know, in fact, her family didn't even want to participate in this candlelight vigil that others in the town had wanted to host to bring attention to her case, probably thinking, like, we don't really need more attention on the case. Like, everybody and their brother knows about it at this point. We've had the dogs out. Um, The police are investigating. Like, clearly the police are, are doing everything in their power. That's enough. We don't need more attention. Nope. Right. Well, and this is, you know, one of those cases where in some instances you need media attention to get your case moving because there are times when the police are not helpful in certain instances. And so by getting nationalized on the case, all of a sudden they're motivated to do what they should have done all along. But in this case, there was never a doubt in anybody's mind, especially the family's mind. The police were taking it very seriously and that they were doing everything they could, even if they didn't have a result that day, they were working on it every day. And so they were not concerned about that at all. So instead, what they agreed to do 
um, was get together with the nuns at Yara's school. She had gone to a, a Catholic high school, essentially, um, and to to pray for her and to pray for the family. So, like, this is the type of family they are. They don't want to have a candlelight vigil. They just but want they to talk welcome... to nuns. That's all they want to do. Right. They invited some nuns into their house to pray for their daughter and to pray for their family. So, like, this, I think, gives you a pretty good understanding so of what wholesome. the family was like. It's so sad and wholesome. It is, and also incredibly sad. Yeah, it's I agree. so sad. Oh, I want to cry. So, uh, sort of the caveat, or sort of what they allowed, was, you know, there was a mass at the local church that was sort of given in Yara's honor, and, you know, talking about her, and also tying religion in there to make it a service. But her family begged the public for their privacy during this hard time. And I think that this quote from um, a local newspaper editor in town, Piero um, Bonacelli, really makes it pretty obvious and clear what this town is about, what the makeup of the town is about. Uh-oh. So he said, uh, quote, it's in the spirit of mountain people to disdain gossip and not to repeat nonsense. If I don't know something, if I have only heard it said, I don't say anything until I'm certain it's true. Did he refer to their town as mountain people? Yeah, and they are by mountains. So he's not like just pulling something out of his ass. <laughs> like are, there are mountains nearby. Are we um, lake people because we're from Minnesota? <laughs> I don't know. Do you want to take that? We could be lake we people. Make it, we can make it us. We're lake people, everybody. Yeah. We are the lake people. Yes. You say, so... yeah, sure, you betcha. Anyway. <laughs> So this gives you a really good view of the town. So the town is en masse, like the family, uncomfortable with all of this media attention and focus. And, you know, the Gimbarazio family, they weren't totally ice cold to the media. So in the few first days after the daughter had disappeared, they did share some pictures with her. You know, her standing in line to take communion, her at one of her gymnastics competitions, you know, to be like, hey, have you seen this child? So it's not like they weren't talking or engaging at all, but they just didn't want it to be those constant now everyday part of their life. And they hoped, obviously, that somebody would recognize her and be like, oh, yeah, I saw that girl. And, you know, they would find her. Right. But nobody came forward from seeing these pictures. And this this is like a big thing that I just wanted to talk about for a moment. So Yara's father was apparently criticized by the media for not being out with the volunteers as they looked for any sign of her or her body or anything like that. And in his defense, he said that he was deeply afraid of being the one to find her body. And the thought of that was just absolutely unbearable to him. Oh, God, I wouldn't even I didn't even think about some like when you think about missing people, when the parents are out searching for like the missing child. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think about what that would be like to find to be the one that found the body if there is a body. Right. Well, and that's, that's just the thing. Like, of course, thought. he wants her to be found, and of course, he would want to be the one to find her. But the thought of finding her dead was just absolutely unbearable for him. And I get that. So yeah. I wanted to take a moment to say that people are allowed to process traumatic events in their own way. So his response is not inappropriate. It doesn't mean he's a bad father or a bad person. Like, you, especially as somebody who probably has not had your child go missing, cannot judge somebody who has. Right. And, and judge how they react. Especially since it, it really seems like there is no lack of volunteers or coverage. 
Exactly. Exactly. His, his extra That's effort exactly would have been infinitesimal in 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 the actual amount of effort being expended to find her. So doing that adds nothing except a a probably you know horrible horrible effect on his mental health, which he's allowed right. to process and do what he needs to do in his own way. He doesn't have to, you know, do what you would do. No one does. Exactly. He's not pandering to your wants or needs. He's taking care of himself and his family. And that's something we have to think about as well. He also needs to be the emotional support for his wife and for his children. Right. So it might be that his best place and the best place for him is with his family. (laughs) Right. And like you said, especially because there are plenty of volunteers who are out there helping. So just want to take a moment to say that because it's something I feel pretty strongly about. Like, you don't get to tell someone else how to process an emotion or how to act, especially when it's not like he heard his daughter was missing and he decided to go on a 14 day cruise. (laughs) All expenses played to the Bahamas Bahamas by himself. (laughs) So he's processing in his own way. Right. And he's a loving father. Right. Exactly. And, you know, that's something else we need to remember, too, is that obviously they're focusing on their missing child. But as I've said, they had three other children and those children still need parents. Those children still need to be taken care of and they still need emotional support in what is also a traumatic experience for them. So finally, Yara's family, uh, despite really not wanting to and having this sort of dichotomy of really, really not wanting to, but really wanting answers and hearing people say like, well, maybe it should help. Maybe you should have an interview. Mm-hmm. They sort of reluctantly gave an interview oh, on national TV. It sounds like it ended badly. Well, people criticize them, of course. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> you know, people were already criticizing them. So, of course, they're going to find something to criticize here. Of course. And, I mean, the number one thing to take away from it. Now I haven't watched this interview myself, but I did read a lot from other people who watched it. I'm sure it's um, all in Italian. They... So <laughs> you probably wouldn't take away much from watching it unless you learned Italian very recently. Well, so... I actually fun fact, your listeners, I took Latin extensively in college and also took French extensively in college and in high school. And so because it's a romance language, well, my reading is better than my listening skills. My reading and listening are better than my speaking. So I actually do know a bit of Italian. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm not wow. saying I'm good at it. I'm not saying I'm good at it. Please don't take that. <laughs> I'm just saying there are some number of words I understand. <laughs> okay. So they appeared on this national TV interview, and they were making this plea to the public to help find their daughter. And the number one takeaway, takeaway excuse me, was that they were extremely uncomfortable so her mother, um, Maura, for instance, apparently had this habit of, and I don't think she was intentionally doing this, but it looked like she was rolling her eyes. And it was clear that it was like a nervous tick. Mm. But if somebody is not thinking past the initial viewing, they're going to be like, oh, look at her. She has so much contempt for this. She's just standing there rolling her eyes. Um, oh, and... That's hmm? not, Yeah. That's I'm, I can already see like I'm sure there's a bunch of tabloids that were like this the the sarcasm and the contempt and the she doesn't want her daughter found. I'm sure there was a ton right of that. exactly 
And her husband spoke, um, Fulvio, and he gave like a really awkward halting speech and not awkward because he said weird, inappropriate stuff, but like he's clearly not a public speaker and probably doesn't know how to write speeches and isn't good at delivering them kind of a way. Um, and so what he said is, quote, help us return to normality, unquote. And he said that their family valued love, respect and honesty. And that beyond this appearance, that they would not be giving interviews. So at this point, and also probably before, unsurprisingly, as often happens in missing persons cases that get as much attention as this, rumors began to spread. Oh, dear. And probably like the biggest and most ridiculous one that I could find um, was some saying that her disappearance was in retaliation for her father testifying against the mafia. However, he had never appeared in court. He <laughs> had never testified against the mafia. And there was literally no case to that whatsoever. Like, oh, no. What so a juicy, horrible just, like, internet rumor. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's they were just awful. Like, you know what would make it like a really good story? Is if the mafia did it. I bet Which, that's what it was, again, man. Right. And once again, that is just wholly disrespectful and totally derailing the case. Yep. Like, don't just make up shit because it'll sell you papers when there is literally a life On in the, the balance line. here. Right. Man, for an open active case where this girl might might actually be out there and in trouble and needs help. All you're doing is giving fuel to a theory that, you know, almost certainly makes zero sense and has absolutely no evidence behind it that's so i'm scummy. gonna give you another life lesson and this is the thumper true crime edition life lesson if you don't have anything useful to say don't say anything at all you look confused like you don't you don't get that reference okay we'll no, move on we'll no, move on no i just wasn't saying anything because i didn't have anything useful to say Hey. Anyway. <laughs> so moving forward in time again, we're at the end of February. It's the 26th. And just a quiet afternoon. And this is exactly three months after Yara has disappeared. And a middle-aged man named Ilario Scotti was enjoying flying his new remote control airplane. So just having a chill, chill afternoon, doing his thing, you know... Making buzzy noises in the air. Yeah. Making buzz buzz noises in the air. Yeah. If it, if it was me, it'd also be crashing into things horribly, but yep. I couldn't see Same. anywhere if he was experienced, mediocre, or brand new to this, so I can't tell you. Okay. And he was flying around a small town called um, Chignolo di Isola, which is about six miles south of um, Brambate di Sopra. So still close by, like we're still not super far away from anything here. And the area that he was flying in was completely barren and very sparsely inhabited. There's like scrub around and like kind of industrial warehouse type buildings. And it seemed like the perfect place for him to fly because he's not going to accidentally like, you know, nosedive a child. Right. Um, and also he's, <laughs> you know what I mean? Not really going to be disturbed by anybody. Like, what a considerate he also person. doesn't have to look a fool in front of the public either if he's not good, as would be me. There's lots of people that fly drones in the park near my house. He's a very considerate person. Right. He's also just being a considerate guy. Yep. 
so he's flying around and noticing that his plane just isn't flying as smoothly as he had hoped. You know, like maybe it just was hard to control. Maybe it was kind of sputtering. It, it just wasn't pulling it far for him. It just wasn't good. So he decides to bring it down and land it so he can go and grab it, maybe do some work on it, see what's causing all these issues, and get back up in the air again. So he lands his plane among the tall weeds that are around him, this scrubland I was talking about. And as he was going to pick up his plane, he thought he saw some rubbish and rags. And he thought maybe Uh-oh. somebody had been fly tipping, which I had never heard this term before. And apparently it's a very, like, British-y term. <laughs> like, everything I saw was referencing the UK. F-L-Y-T-I-P-P-I-N-G. Fly tipping? Yes, but it's hyphenated. Fly tipping. But yes, those words. What does that mean? And this is a... Yes. So I have a note in here that this is a term for dumping trash illegally. Oh. So essentially he thought somebody had like driven up in their car and been like, I don't want to deal with this and like dump some trash on the ground and driven off. And I just, oh, another life lesson. Aren't you so blessed that you get all these life lessons in one episode? Don't litter. It is. Well, one part one, a don't litter <laughs> part one, B it is never just rubbish and rags. Never. I mean, sometimes it is statistically just some trash. But No, never. N- never, never, Matt. You're wrong. Just never. So he went to approach it. Uh-oh. And you see, then he noticed Uh-oh. the shoes. Uh-oh. And then he noticed that there was a body in the shoes. Uh-oh. Oh, no. And... That body was Yara's body. Oh, no. Right. So it's kind of like when I first read this, the thing that really stood out to me and the first thought that I had was, you know, he thought that it was just rubbish and rags because it was just so haphazardly, you know, thrown to the side. And that's what her killer treated her like. Her killer treated her like she was garbage to them and that just made me incredibly sad and i had to like i had to take a break and like go snuggle my cats and then come back to writing this right up man okay you uh, i'm really sad now too because you like had me totally convinced when the investigator was like incredible 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 i'm like oh nice they find her alive but no she's, <sighs> I she's wish. not alive maybe okay i promise that one time we'll do a story about a kid who is found safe and sound and we get to go home happy so at some time or we could do more ghost stories, because those are always good, too. But that's that's not today. Nope. So the lead investigator in this case, um, uh, Rugeri, was on the way home from a day of skiing with her daughter. And that's when she got the call. And when talking to a reporter who, like, really in-depth covered this case, um, she said that it was a relief. Uh, she said, quote, Yara's disappearance had really disturbed me. I'm a mother too, and the only thing worse than the death of a child is the disappearance of a child, end quote. That's controversial, but I don't really know how to feel about it one way or another. I think I get what she's getting at, though. It's harder not knowing. Yeah. And, you know, living with this hope at the back of your mind that they're going to be found and they're going to be okay, and when you find a body, you have closure, and you can really, you know, go through the mourning process instead of being in limbo. Right. Obviously, it would have been better if she was found alive, but 
Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that is like the number one what we want to happen, or right. that she just like never goes disappear, like never goes missing in the first place. But finding some sense of closure is part of the relief. But there's no closure here because there's still a murderer on the loose. Exactly, and there's, so that's why, as sad as it there. is, the police now you know had another huge body of evidence, which I did not mean to make that a pun. I'm going to hell. Um. <laughs> But because now they had her body, and so now they could find out, you know, how she died, around what time she died, what happened to her, all of these things. So they had to get back into police mode, and that is, you know, finding her killer and using everything that they could to do so. So Yara's body was in an advanced state of decomposition, so it didn't look like she had been alive up until the day before and then had died. She had been dead for a while. But on the plus side, because it was winter and it was so cold outside, her body had also frozen, which helped to preserve her remains. So she was still wearing her signature bomber jacket. Um, and it was actually, uh, Ruguri said later that when she saw that, that's when she knew it was Yara and that it wasn't somebody else. It wasn't someone else's child. Like, this was Yara. Aww. And it's important to note here that this exact field had been searched in the days immediately after Yara had disappeared, and oh, she no. hadn't been found then. So that means right, that and like I, she was held captive somewhere for a period of time before being killed, and then her body was dumped or there afterwards. the killer had put her body somewhere else, stored mm. it, and then left it there. Right. Um, in fact, maybe doing so on purpose, knowing that it had already been searched. Hmm. So and it's important close to note to the here case. too. <laughs> right. I mean, which everybody had was, at this point, unless yeah. they were living under a rock. I suppose. Um, yeah. But like I said, it was just kind of scrubland. So we're not talking about hills and a forest and trees and hidden caves or anything. I mean, this is a pretty flat, open area, the type of area you would go to fly a remote control plane. So there was no chance that they had just somehow overlooked her body in those first few days. So the idea was, was that the killer, like we talked about, was watching the news, knew what areas had been searched, waited to double check, and then left her body there being like, hey, they're not going to come back out here to look. Mm. And he was right, because she was found by just a random happenstance passerby and not someone specifically looking for her. Now, it was also clear that Yara had been attacked with some kind of a sharp implement. She had superficial and not super deep cuts all over her body but they you know the object was sharp enough that it sliced her clothing where she had been attacked and also left marks but it clearly wasn't like a meat cleaver or some sort of really sharp you know like I'm, I'm purposely using this with the intent of you know my intent coming here was to kill you with this object right. made for killing it's it's a bad whatever shit whatever all those cuts were made by was not not a, like a super sharp knife or anything. It was sharp right, enough it was to not cut, a but not... Weapon. Right. right, it wasn't made as a weapon. It was something used as a weapon. Right. Among her remains, they also found her iPod. Does anybody remember iPods? 2010. Do they even still make those? <laughs> 2010, I had an iPhone 3G and an iPod to go wow. with it. Wow, yeah. look at you. I assuredly did not. Anyway... <laughs> They found her iPod, and they found the battery for her phone and the SIM card for the phone, but, like, the phone body itself was still missing. Okay. 
So initially, uh, the forensic pathologists got excited because they did find forensic evidence just immediately at the scene. And that had been um, some DNA left on her cell phone battery and on like two of the fingers of her gloves. But it just wasn't enough. I mean, something that we need to realize when talking about taking samples of DNA is that you need to have enough of that material to make a profile. You can't just have like one teeny tiny little particle and be like, oh, yeah, we know exactly who you are and where you live and like what your favorite color is. So it just wasn't enough. Typically, the the DNA profiling process is also destructive of that evidence. So if exactly. You have, so you can't like go back and try it again. Right. If you have a single hair, that's usually not enough. Like it can be, but typically, I mean, you'll destroy that hair follicle when you actually do the DNA test. Exactly. And you know, like I was saying, this evidence had been preserved because of the cold. But then they were kind of let down to be like, well, this isn't enough for There's us to no go off. Evidence of. there though. Oh no. So they, you know, left the scene, took her body in to have an autopsy, and they were still processing things like her clothing, for instance, and trying to, like, you know, search every Every particle of what they had to see what they could find. So as this was going on, and it's important to note, too, that none of these processes are like, you do it in an hour and you're done. Like, this is days we're talking about here. Yeah. This takes quite a bit of work and effort. Dozens of man hours per piece of evidence. Right, exactly. And so, while this is happening, an autopsy was performed by Professor Cristina Cataneo, who is actually Italy's most famous forensic pathologist. And I didn't know that. So she's like a professional TM. Like, she is ready to go. She is the most qualified person for this particular task. Exactly. Now, she found traces of Lyme and Yara's respiratory passages, as well as the presence of something called jute, I believe. I'd never heard of it before. And it's a vegetable fiber used to make rope. Yep, it's used and a they lot found... in, in shipping ropes. And, like, uh, usually, like, if you're shopping on Amazon and you see hemp rope, usually that's jute rope. They don't really... So they're like, this will sell better by the name, but correct. it's not really that. 100% correct. Yes, it's usually jute. <laughs> right. So, and that's, that's a good point. So they're already starting to think about, okay, like, what places would you see this? And they're thinking of somebody who's working around these types of things. Um, and they found the fibers um, of, of jute on her clothing. Now, just, I know what the big question is going to be. I know this is probably on everyone's mind at this point, And I can say that Yara was not sexually assaulted. However, her bra was unclasped. So it seems like whoever killed her had probably tried to initiate some sort of sexual assault. But she fought back. Good for Um, her. And part of the reason why we know this is because they found more evidence, which we will get to in a moment. But going back to what happened to Yara, um, she had suffered a head injury, possibly from something like a rock um, and those cuts to her body that we had talked about before. Um, The thing to note here is that the rock and the stab wounds, those didn't kill Yara. Yara had died from exposure in the cold weather after she went unconscious. So somebody had attacked her and then left her to die, which is horrible. Absolutely horrible. Oh, that's so sad. 
All of this is sad. I, you're right. Like, 100% of this is sad. I'm sad. Um, it was noted that the killer might have been in, like, the building trade due to the rope into the presence of lime. And, like, I couldn't figure out why lime would be indicative of this. Um, it so, could be, if you could drop some wisdom on me, that would be great. Um, it could be, like, uh, lime is... I don't know. I'd have to do some Googling with my loud keyboard. Um, but I think a lot of times it's used as an additive in concrete, and it might even be in, like, drywall powder. I could okay. be wrong about okay, that. Okay, I could get behind that. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, bro. So the forensic team, like I mentioned, got those two DNA samples right off the bat, but they couldn't do anything with them. However, two months after finding her body, the team caught another break. Rugeri received a call that they had found specifically male DNA on Yara's underwear. And that's now, not Yara's. Thing, correct. And the important thing to note here is that it's not what you think it is. They thought it was blood. Oh. So that was where they thought that someone had attacked her, attempted to sexually assault her, and she fought like hell. She was not going to go down without a fight. And so she injured her attacker in the scuffle and obviously whatever he had planned if he had planned it at all didn't go the way he thought it would and so that's when he ended up hitting her over the head maybe mm. he had threatened her with some sort of sharp implement and that's when she fought back but it, things didn't go how he thought they would go and so he attacked her knocked her unconscious and then left her now if he left her and she sort of fell and was left where she fell and then he moved her or that he attacked her moved her into some other outdoor location and then moved her again i'm i'm not sure hmm. but this was i mean this was great because they know like i said that this is male dna so that's already cutting out a big portion of the population and also this dna was good it was an abundance of cells according to one of the forensic pathologists so that's like i mean that's great because that means that they can do a test and they still have enough of that sample left over to test again if they need to as you were mentioning earlier and apparently this trace and i kept seeing this and i don't know as much about sciencey things so i couldn't find out more about it but they said that it was a trace 31 g20 which i assume has to do with your ladder of dna but i i, I don't know hmm. yeah sorry y'all I, I can't give you more information there um and so you know police have a theory they have a picture in their mind of what happened they have a specific but broad group of people to start looking at and clearly they're not going to be like yeah we're going to test everybody who lives in australia Right. Like, they're going to be starting with the people around them and then moving out. So they have a clear path of what they need to do next and where they need to go. And so now the police were ready to begin their hunt in earnest. They dubbed the killer Unknown One, and they were coming for him. And you'll have to tune in next time to see what happens next.